It's the fourth episode of Ben Lee in quarantine. And here I am again, doing one of these big, tantalizing intro pieces up the top. It's me, Max Quinn. Hello. And the vibe here is that me and the Australian songwriter Ben Lee are chatting for half an hour every day while he's in coronavirus hotel quarantine in Sydney. Because Ben's a fascinating man, and clearly he has lived a life. Yesterday, the points of intersection between QAnon, spirituality, and fascism. And if that were not lofty and hoity-toity enough for you, today I want to throw in the mix capitalism and identity and the music industry. Why not? So how easy is it for your spirituality to become your entire identity? That's what's coming up on Ben Lee in Quarantine. Let's start here. I saw the tweet about today's philosophical discussion with your family. What natural element is best? Where do you stand? I, I was not that involved with it. I thought it was funny that, it, it, like, <laughs> you know, it's like bands have this when they're trapped in a tour bus. Definitely. You find these ongoing running jokes and ways of teasing each other and things mm. that sort of escalate over time and become, uh, you know, ongoing conversations. So I was just amused to hear, like, I was having a coffee in the morning and I sort of half was listening to Ioni and Kate talking and then I was like, are they debating their favourite elements? <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have an opinion? Where do you stand? Well, I, I think the elements, uh, there's, uh, uh, I'm not sure. It's like when people say, what's your favourite colour? I've mm. always been weird about favourites. Like, I don't really have, I mean, as a musician, I've had to be a part of so many, like, name an influential album articles yeah, or podcasts sure. or, that I've, I've, I've come up with stock answers yep. that I can tell you, but... I generally find favorite type thinking to be sort of reductive of the experience because in some ways, like, I mean, without getting too off the subject, but, but things that change you are not always even things you enjoy. True. So like what you call your favorite work can sometimes be the least challenging work. You know, sometimes like, sometimes I've had art that I've struggled with by other people, tr struggled with understanding and processing over the course of years. And that, in a sense, has been the most rewarding work. Um, but I wouldn't really call it my favorite. It's interesting because I tend to reject things that I don't understand right away. Like I, for a really long time, had a big problem with, um, let's say, 2001 to 2020 Radiohead. Because yeah, I knew you were going to say Radiohead. I still you? haven't yeah. seen Beyonce's Lemonade for this Yeah, reason. right. Okay. Because it's too much. It's like I don't feel that I'm going to be able to have my own experience mm. because other people's opinions are so intense in my head. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to watch Beyonce's Lemonade a decade from now, one afternoon when I'm not anticipating anything, and I'll see what I think of it. Yeah, yeah. You get to have your own discourse with yourself at that time and truly yeah. feel how you feel. That's cool. I wanted to pick up on something that we didn't get to yesterday, but when you said it, the light bulb went on for me in terms of the intersecting worlds of creativity and spirituality. And as someone who swims in both lanes, um, maybe I think water is the best element, who knows? Um, mm -hmm. uh, maybe you'll have a feeling for this because what you were talking about was how people buy into spirituality and into conspiracy. And I wanted to sort of put this in front of you and just see how you feel about it to begin with today because that phrase buy-in is something that I talk about all the time in the work that I do as an advocate for mental health in the music industry. And let me, let me start with this. 
to work in the creative industries to whatever degree is to run like a business or an enterprise. Do you agree with that? Um, yeah, whether intentionally or unintentionally, you end up having to do it. It's like you have to get really good at cables. Yes. Like no one who got, gets into music ever thinks, I'm going to become an expert in cables, but you end up knowing a lot about cables. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. You're like, well, here's my three pin, here's my seven pin. And yeah. uh, I, these have different reasons and no one other than other musicians is interested in this in any way. Yeah, exactly. Now, the nuts and bolts of, of running a business are that you're exchanging goods and services for currency, yeah? And the currency in the creative industries, like the goods and services you exchange, are in base form, like your ideas manifest, your creative output. Do you think that's true too? Sure, yeah. And I would also like to posit that commerce can really complicate creativity because the creative industries, exactly as you say, you get good at cables, you sort of have to run a business and the creative industries make it very easy for young people, especially to conflate ideas and identity because it's like how you are perceived externally and it's also how you afford to live, which is what I think creates this really swampy porridge of like personal pandemonium where you are what you do and what you do is who you are and you depend on it for income. And I think that um, I used to think it was unique to the creative industries, but maybe I'm, I'm starting to not think that anymore it makes it hard to identify a sunk cost because you've spent so much of your creative capital buying in to this like mirror image construction where your idea is your identity that cashing out can feel like a betrayal of self. How do you feel about that idea? Yeah, I mean, to some degree, I think that the kind of people that have no choice but to make art, they they don't ever perceive the journey as having an end to it. Right. So it's almost like saying, like, are you successful as a creative person? Well, maybe not today, but maybe tomorrow. Mm. Like, we we see this as an ongoing journey that basically of craftsmanship that we'll, like, get better at as we go and that hopefully recognition of our talents will build and escalate as, you know, as our life goes on. Um, so I don't know if there's ever a moment where you can get out and really look at the balance sheet and go, how much (laughs) did I put in? How much? Like, arguably, if you can ever find a moment to get out, I wonder if you really had what it took to be an artist. I mean, that's a very, it sounds like incredibly, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps type thinking, but, Mm. but, but I sort of think that like, if the journey has an end, it, it, it was never a real journey to begin with, you know. Um, so you're talking about kind of like how you evaluate what you put in versus what you get back. Yes, let, let, I mean, let me let me recontextualize the idea of cashing okay. out. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, sorry, I just got a DM from Russell Crowe. Oh no, so way. <laughs> it distracted me for a moment. I didn't read it though. I thought <laughs> I'm going to stay present. <laughs> so the the vibe is. Uh, like something that I see so many musicians struggling with is becoming so entangled in their own identity and depending so much on their own ideas that their ideas become their identity. And you kind of like, there's there's a tendency, I think, for particularly young artists to be able to fall in a hole because they lose all sense of interest, all sense of anything outside of what their ideas are and what their vision is. And then you know, some of this is still out of their control and they uh, want to fall in a hole. 
But is that that different to anyone else's life? Or if you're a school teacher, are you not consumed with the culture of the school and the politics with the principal and the parents and the dramas with the kid? Like, like isn't the nature of participating in a socioeconomic community one of becoming consumed by that community? Or that I do agree. Role? Yeah. Yes, I would say the only difference is that you in the creative industries in particular are as as good as your last idea, I think, uh-huh. you know, um, and that that is the point of conflation for me. But I was thinking about this in the context of spirituality and what we were talking about yesterday, and I'm tempted to apply the same template, you know, conspiratorial thinking, spirituality, cults. If we were to take the personality type that you discussed with me yesterday, you know, someone seeking something broader with a penchant to to defer to whatever higher power that they find, guru, yogi, archbishop, whatever. How easy or how hard is it, do you think, under those auspices for spirituality to become your identity? Oh, right. Yeah. Well, that's something that I've definitely considered, particularly I've allowed my identity to become consumed through my belief systems or philosophies at various points of my life. Mm. But I'm not sure that that is the hardest part to shake. I think the hardest part is the social contracts, um, the meaning that your life has through community. For instance, like if you're involved in a church, yep. yes, there's your relationship to Jesus and the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and you have that, but it's really your relationship with your neighbors and the Sunday roasts and the charities mm. you're involved in and the, the 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 structure it gives your family and the way you parent. and so. All of that stuff is like that. That is why I think, like you know, I I'm Jewish, and you know, uh, my family I see as like very culturally religious in the sense that there wasn't that much consideration of sort of spiritual issues. But I think my parents really liked the identity um, that being involved in the Jewish community gave them. Yeah, and it made them feel connected to, and and I, so I guess like as as artists also. I mean, it's funny because I still have a thing. Like if someone plays really heavy music Mm. and their music sounds scary, I get a little bit scared of them. Yeah. Like like I just have this idea. Like it's almost like I've bought into their identification with their art that this person is going to be terrifying. Like someone like um, Josh Harmy or someone like that. Who Like when I first met him, I was like, this dude is scary, you know, and he doesn't, <laughs> but you know, it, sometimes he plays that up a little bit, I think too, but yeah, it's really just the music that was so, so I think it is, you do become very defined, but, but one of the interesting things about um, art is that sometimes there's actually a type of liberation that comes through role-playing. I think of like something Oscar Wilde said, where he said, um, give a man a mask, he'll show you the truth. Yeah. And I think that if you look at people like um, David Bowie or Tom Waits or Keith Richards or Bob Dylan, they've had these personas that have actually given them the freedom to move between spaces, between cultures, between scenes, between countries. They've moved. They've, they've had very, like, fluid experiences, I think, as human beings because they've been somewhat protected through the way the world identifies them with persona. Mm. Um, so I think there's also a protective element that humans have, whether it's through their participation in a church or a religion or a music scene or the way they dress, are they goth? Or I mean, I remember Benji from Good Charlotte telling me 
they liked getting tattoos on their hands and necks and faces and everything because they didn't want to have, they didn't want to be involved with the kinds of people that would judge them for that. Yeah, totally. And they knew that they could tell within a second the way someone looked at them, whether or not that was the kind of person they wanted to be in business with or friends right. with. So, so, you know, it's very complicated in the way when we look at identity, I think we are all both using identity as a sort of airplane to take us to our destination, but we're also, it's a prison cell at the same time. And right. I think what you're touching on is like fundamentally what, when when we think of like philosophical thinking or spiritual thinking, the, this is the fundamental issue that we're trying to address, which is what I'm trapped either way. Whatever I do here, I'm I'm a prisoner of this experience. Right. And that that is, you know, I talk to the kids about this a lot because sometimes they talk about, you know, like kids always say, it's not fair. Mm. And the classic parent thing is, yeah, it's not fair. Sometimes yeah. it's not fair. But what we're essentially saying about there is like, yeah, you are here. <laughs> you are in this thing. Welcome you are in this Earth. thing. And, and there's a lot of flexibility in it, but there's a hell of a lot of rules to it too. Right. And it kind of goes according to there's, – there's a limit to how much flexibility you have with the life you can create if you're going to be in reality. What is then the liberation that let's, – let's turn this around on yesterday – what is the liberation that you think that people who are um, falling into these uh, conspiracy theories, this red pill world, what's the liberation that they're finding through this role playing, given that, you know, give a man a mask, he'll show you the truth? Yeah. So what are people finding? I, I think people are finding community. Yeah. I think we are in an increasingly isolated world and feeling part of something is really big. I think um, just like Dorothy wanted to pull the curtain back and see who the wizard was, right. I think there is a uniquely human desire to know what is going on out of our field of vision mm. because we know that we're missing a lot. And it it's, you know, in some ways it's true. Like you can learn secrets to things. For instance, guitar playing. Like when I was, I, I'm not the best guitar player in the world, but if I saw myself when I was 10 years old, if I saw myself now, the way I can play guitar, yeah. it would be it would appear magical to me. <laughs> and what I've noticed about that, especially with craft, is that if someone is one or two steps ahead of you, you can fathom it. You go like, oh yeah, I can see they've they've practiced a little more. Once you get about five steps ahead, it looks like magic. Yeah. And that's the nature of it. It is like yeah. your brain cannot comprehend how their fingers can do that. Your brain cannot comprehend how the person can sit and meditate for two hours if you can't sit for five minutes. Um, you know, so this is where the seduction of expertise and confidence and charisma comes in, mm. that we look at people who, are, who carry themselves with a certain type of swagger. Yep. Um, whether that's a guru type or a teacher or an... Um, a politician or someone on the internet who actually, if we saw them, we would realize the swagger is very much a construct that exists in ones and zeros, but it's still very charismatic when we're also vulnerable and insecure in this life. So I, I kind of, um, I, I, I really get it. I mean, the, the, the thing about secret knowledge, right? Cause this is the idea, like the occult, all of this stuff is connected to the occult. Like what is the occult? The occult is what's hidden. Mm. Right. And it's come, it's come to take on a certain type of 
there are like sort of um motifs of like you know witchcraft and uh mandalas and all these chanting and all these spells and everything but essentially like anyone who's interested in occult knowledge is interested in hidden knowledge and it is an incredibly seductive thing to fall in love with um and i'm increasingly as i mature i sort of believe that the way occultism is represented, whether it's through QAnon or through Tibetan Buddhism or through the church or even through academia, mm. you know, the idea, the, it's, it is sort of one of the great lies that we tell ourselves as a society in order to give our lives meaning. Yeah. Yeah, because I understand the, that. The idea that, like, the idea that, like, I'm sitting here now and what's available to me is present, and I have to deal with that. <laughs> um, and what I bring to this conversation, my other, maybe other conversations I've had in the past that I felt I failed in communication or being understood, or that I haven't learned how to listen, and I haven't like all that wounding is here too. Yep. Um, and it's all ripe for exploration, and it's all kind of malleable and interesting to play with, and fun to play with, and emotional, but. There is no secret knowledge that is going to unlock this conversation that I don't already have access to. Right. There is no the secret. There is no the secret. Yeah. You know? So yeah. you then are someone who has gotten out of these kinds of experiences before. We're talking about the community that people find in them. What did yeah. that feel like for you on an emotional level when you were getting out of these experiences? And what did it feel like to the people... Was anyone upset? Oh, yeah, man. I've like, I mean, now I feel like don't ever invite me into your cult because I'm going to burn it down <laughs> like at some point. But um, I, I've really, um, <laughs> I've really, um, I've, yeah, for sure had friendships destroyed. Um, you know, I'm, I'm someone who even when I'm wrong, mm. I try and tell the truth. Um, so it may not be an objective truth. I may not be telling you the truth, but I'm telling you my truth at any given right. point. I'm not someone who can handle my own hypocrisy very well. Um, I'd rather suffer the consequences of being wrong. Um, and there have been moments like, I think, for instance, um, when I was involved with a Hindu guru and I I hit this... Um, I hit this fundamental moral sort of um, roadblock yeah. where I, I suddenly realized, like truly realized, I mean, it's funny, I'd already written We're All in This Together, but that, <laughs> that, there, cannot, yeah, that there cannot be a hierarchy yeah. in human beings. There cannot. It is, I, I, I reject it. And not only do I reject it, even if it's real, I reject it. Like I don't just yeah. reject it because I don't believe in it, but I refuse to live in a world where certain people have access to more information than others. And what you're being sold within the guru system or within a religious system is, I mean, it's funny, we started talking about privilege and racial privilege, yeah. but that, that's baked into religion. There are yep. privileged classes. It's based into the, baked into the class system. There's priests and there's the castes and there's the workers and the the you know the 
whatever, all these different, you know, uh, different castes in different religions. Um, and I, I hit like a moral objection. Right. And that, that I said, okay, here's this person who's claiming to know more than I do innately, not through mm. study, not through work, not through experience, but was simply born that way, knowing more and, and that you will never get to that place because you weren't born with that. Right? Yeah. To yeah. me, to me that once I, you know, I, I bought into that for a bit, but as it hit me, what that the implications of that really are, that again, it comes back to like fascism. Right. You cannot, I, I, I refuse to accept that's essentially certain people are better than others. I just refuse to accept it. And so for me, the risk is in, and, and this is where I find actually in Judaism um, some comfort because Judaism is a little bit less of a, um, it's like it doesn't encourage you just necessarily to accept things dogmatically. Mm. They actually have like a lot of myths about wrestling with angels and um there's an interesting proverb where they say, choose your rabbi, because the idea is there are options of ways yeah. to do this and you can, you can pick, you have, you know, um, but there's this struggling with, uh, struggling with ideas is okay. Whereas when you get into authoritarian power structures, whether they're in religious or in political things, there's actually no room to struggle. If you think about even depictions in popular culture of religion, there is no, I would say, anecdotally, there is no religion that is depicted as being more open to the ideas of others, that is depicted as being more receptive to debate than Judaism. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, um, and so, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I don't even really, I mean, I'm born Jewish, but I don't really consider myself a a practitioner of any religion, but there are things mm. I like in each religion. And, and so I just found um, a courage to struggle. It's almost like that, um, wait, who was Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night? That was- um, Oh, yeah. Uh, who was that? Uh, Do Not Go Gentle In. Uh, I'm looking it up. Yeah, uh, forget the poet. Uh, Dylan Thomas. Yeah, Dylan Thomas. Uh, it's that type of thing, uh, rage, rage against the dying of the light, that part of what makes us unique in our humanness is our ability to fight back yeah. against injustice. And I don't believe it's just surrender. I mean, that's a lot of um, spiritual programs essentially lull you into complacency and inaction and passivity by telling you just surrender, just go with it. Um, the teachings will carry you through, the guru will carry you through, all of that. Whereas I'm, you know, I come from punk rock. So mm. for me, it's like there's got to be piss and vinegar in <laughs> the actual experience for it to be dynamic and alive. More authentic. And I, yeah, exactly. And and so I think those feelings are uncomfortable. I think it's it's difficult to realize how much struggle is actually involved in the human experience. And personally, um, in some ways, I think that my interest in spirituality when I was younger was about trying to pacify my own piss and vinegar, yeah. my own moxie, my the battle within me. Because things happened to me like, 
you know, for instance, around Breathing Tornadoes when I was like, I'm the greatest Australian songwriter of all time. And <laughs> they, they, you know, it's a piece of performance art. Yeah. But it came from a volatile ability to create drama, conflict, and to provoke. Right. And if you have that in you, that and you get burnt in a certain way, because you will get burnt. If you're someone that likes to be controversial or be provocative, you will get burnt. And you'll experience being on the receiving end of, you know, some difficult experiences. Provocation. Yeah, and I think at a certain point for me, I sort of started seeing that side of myself as problematic. And I was like, well, I got to, I have to pacify this. I have I to figure you. out how to adapt and be kinder and more gentle and more fun. And you know what's weird about it? I was right about that too. It's not all bad. Like, but you cannot, yep. if, if you want to live burning at a thousand degrees, uh, you're not going to have a very long experience. No, it's why you know? <laughs> fire is the most dangerous natural element. Exactly. I mean, those people, people that do that, like Andy Kaufman, um, mm -hmm. you know, it's like you, you, it basically inevitably leads to self-destruction at right. the end of it because the ultimate piece of performance art or of nihilism or of challenge is saying like, well, I don't even need to be here. I mean, the true spoil sport ultimately yes. leaves the game. Yes. And I think what I realized was that the path of provocation, the way I was doing it, was not sustainable for me. Mm. So I became interested in working with um, working with a little more levity, working with my innate sense of humor, which my humor was always there. Like I thought that was hilarious. Like yeah. I, thought, I thought provoking people was hilarious. But, Fuck yeah, I understand. Yes, and it's become a little bit more of an acceptable means of comedy now with like um, – Nathan Fielder and, you know, different yeah. things like that or like, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen. But right. at that moment in time for a musician, that was, it, it was not, it was not a path to be making friends, you know? So right. I, I think just sort of what I realized was that like, in some ways, if I do believe that I have ideas to share, not that they're going to save the world, but they're like a valuable part of the conversation, you've got to figure out how to get them into people's ears and how to get them into people's minds. And that, like pop music, which I've always loved, mm. there's something about the sweetness of um, the, the the sweetness of a melody, the sweetness of repetition. It's like these are skills you learn about communication in a way that's palatable. Right. And before you know it, you are communicating more difficult truths in some ways without alerting the radar of it's like the Trojan horse. Yeah. Okay. And that was really around Awake is the New Sleep. I got really interested in that. Like how do you Trojan horse ideas into the mainstream and become part of a larger conversation but still have the innately subversive heart of what you're doing intact? How do you become Burt Bacharach figuring out that the best thing to do in a pop song is to put the high note right in the middle of that chorus? Yeah, you're playing with the emotional drama of like what's going to be satisfying for people? Like. Yep. Like, it's like, you know, I've kind of learned how to shape a set. It's like, come on, you come out, you do the first three songs, you don't talk a whole lot, you pound through them, give them really up-tempo ones. At a certain point, you can take a break and play some mellow and newer stuff. People can go to the toilet. They can do whatever they want. At the mm -hmm. end, you do a few hits, you do an encore. It's like these are structural things that I used to hate because to me they were vestiges of like a broken, old-fashioned ways of thinking that were inherently limiting. 
Okay. Yeah. But so just to bring things around a little Let's bit. Let's circle back. So what I'm what I'm trying to tell the kids when life is unfair, <laughs> hey, life is unfair. unfair. I've got to go. I've got to go verse, chorus, verse, chorus. Yeah. I've got a little freedom after that. Yeah. Essentially, it's not fair. If you choose to go super out there and do experimental atonal noise, you can. Not that many people are going to want to listen to it. They might like it a lot, but it, it'll be a smaller audience. But hey, them's the breaks. You know what I mean? That's right. the rules of communication. And so I think for me, this process of understanding how much can I rock the boat versus mm. how much structure, craftsmanship, um, amiability, friendship, friendliness, yep. how much, how, how do I do that balance? Because what I see with great artists within popular culture, and, and wait, and now this is just something that came up when you were first talking about the commerce thing. Um, Jarvis Cocker, you know him? He was in pop yeah, yeah. and everything. So Jarvis Cocker, um, I worked with a similar, the same producer as him, and I used to hate getting on the phone with a record label because um, I didn't like arguing about things. And right. and, um, and Ed, who did Breathing Tornadoes, he said, um, oh, Jarvis loved it. And I said, <laughs> why? And he said, because Jarvis loves pop culture. And he genuinely believes that at the end of that battle, you'll come out with the best solution. That's interesting. That is a, an artist who is fully embracing popular culture. Yeah. The commerce of it, everything. And I think like, you know, essentially people like Judd Apatow kind of do that. They basically want to communicate within the mainstream. And mm-hmm. Judd's movies, they go on a little bit long. He's we'll earned, cut 20 minutes here or yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's earned the right to do that. <laughs> but he, he got that power by playing by the rules, essentially. Right. You know, right. Um, or at least fighting for things and earning it through performance in front of an audience. Yep. So, so I'm in multiple minds about this. And this is where I think struggle is okay. That for me, there is, okay, this is how I ultimately think about it in terms of money. Because you can say, as an artist in the commercial world, you're only as good as the last thing you made, right? But the reason you reached out to me to do this podcast yep. is not because of the last thing I made. It's because of the overall vibe mm. of what I've done over a quarter of a century. And some of it you probably liked, some of it you didn't like. It doesn't really matter. You thought it was all kind of interesting, right? Yes, so that's I correct. Think that to me is the model I chose to work on, which is one of adding value. So I sort of think of it in terms mm. of like, as opposed to going, ah, oh, if I write this song, this can make me this amount of money or can have this outcome. I don't think of it like that. I think of this podcast is a, a creative piece and it's something that is free. And I haven't even asked you if there's advertising or how any of that works, but it's it's like a free thing. We're not making any money from this. Yep. Um, but I see it as adding value, Yep. right? And I believe that if you're a value-adding human being in a community, someone's going to pay you to do something. At a certain point, yes. At a Someone certain gets point, across the line and says, I've got this money for you. The phone is going to ring yep. if you keep adding value. And that is the way I choose to do my career. Yeah, and so to tie all of the loose ends together, it's interesting because so much of the feedback that I, so much, some of the feedback that I give to artists in my job as someone who listens to music is, well, why are there three verses here? You know what I mean? Like, we got we to gotta just play by the rules a little bit more before you hit me with the um, key change in the middle eight, you know? And yeah. I think that you're absolutely right in in saying what you're saying, that we have to 
play by the rules a little bit in order to later break the rules. Yeah, exactly. And look, there are some people who innately understand how to do it from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Like, um, you know, this composer Harold Budd died today. Yeah. Um, who's an amazing ambient composer. And he was operating also outside of norms. And, you know, there's some people that, but generally, whether you look at Coltrane, um, you know, or Dylan, these are people who like began understanding the mediums they were working in and the constrictions and the constraints of those mediums and then gently pushed out over decades. Yep. And that to me is where the coolest shit happens. That's where it happens and that's where you add your value. Yeah. That's right. Cool. Tomorrow, I want to ask you about breaking up with your guru. Yeah. And I also want to ask you about the way that, um, I mean, we talked about capitalism a little bit, but the actual capital cost of engaging with spirituality as well. Yeah, let's do it. Cool. Okay, sick. Right. Thank you, Ben. Talk to you then. Bye. Bye. Ben Lee in Quarantine is a collaboration between me, Max Quinn, and Ben Lee. I'm doing all the mixing and producing and editing and stuff. Sorry if you run into any pops or clicks or bung audio. I'm trying. Thank you to Ben. You can find him on the internet at Ben Lee Music. You can say hi to me at Max Quinn. We'll have another episode for you real soon.